Hello everyone, I'm Dina. And I'm Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into the episode, we have some news. Yeah, in case you missed it on social media, we have a whole bunch of new merch available for all of you. Yes, it's up on thegrimcurriculum.threadless.com and we have all sorts of goodies available for you. You betcha. And also, our Grim Trinket shop is still up on Etsy and that won't be going anywhere. This just allows us to get uh, different types of merch out there for you guys. But, enough about that. Yeah, so this episode has been in the works for a while now, and it is finally time. Time to tell you about a place. A place on Ocean Avenue. Where I used to sit and talk with you? Nope, a place riddled with demons, ghost marching bands, flies, and more. Dear listeners, it is time for Amityville. That is right. We are starting our series on the Amityville haunting. Many of you may know the story. The murders happened, a year later the Lutz family arrived, and 28 days after that they were out of there claiming all sorts of wild things. But today we aren't going to be talking about the haunting itself. We will be covering the terrible tragedy that started it all, the DeFeo family murders. We do want to warn you all beforehand that some parts of this episode may be difficult to hear. On November 14, 1974, Butch DeFeo murdered his parents and four siblings. It's thought by some that this is what led to the activity that had the Lutz family running for the hills. I am so excited for this series. Oh <laughs> my god. So we've been planning this one for a while. This story is absolutely amazing. It's almost, in my opinion, it's almost a household name. There's been so many books and movies about this house. I honestly, it's impossible not to know about it. I'm stoked mostly because I'm hoping that some of you listening have only like seen the movies because the real story has so much more to it. Speaking of, first things first, we know you're all eager to hear about the oozing walls and demon pigs, but we're not actually going to talk about the haunting at all today. Yes, we are saving that for part three. You heard that right. We're going to be talking about the murders, obviously, but we also wanted to include Butch DeFeo's time in prison. Yes, because he died a little over a year ago, actually, and interestingly enough, the reason why is not being released to the public. Like I said, there is so much to talk about. I can't wait. So let's just get into it. Before we get into the DeFeo family murders, we, of course, have to get to know the family themselves. And of course, in this case, the house. Who were they and what could have possibly led to one of their own family members killing them while they slept? Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., also known as Big Ronnie, was born on November 16, 1930. During his younger years, he was considered a very handsome man. It didn't come as a surprise to many when he met Louise Marie Brigante, a beautiful young woman with dreams of becoming a model. Big Ronnie was a pretty loud and boisterous kind of guy who could sometimes really rub people the wrong way, and he was often unpredictable and had a very short fuse. Louise loved him, but her parents could not stand him, and I feel so bad for her. She isn't a lot younger than him, but she's clearly smitten with him, and she's not seeing all of the red flags that are, like, waving hello at her right now. Her parents were devastated when Louise and Big Ronnie got married, only after knowing each other for a short time. 
This caused a huge fight in the family, and they actually refused to see her or even speak to them. They originally settled in Brooklyn, and on September 26, 1951, Louise gave birth to their first son, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., also known as Butch. Big Ronnie was not a great dad by any means. Sure, he gave him attention and bought him pretty well whatever he wanted, but he would also discipline Butch harshly and often in very violent ways. He was known to hit him and even throw him across the room whenever he was mad, which seemed to be pretty often. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but during the trial, his uncle would testify that he once was watching TV with Butch and Big Ronnie when all of a sudden Big Ronnie flew up in a rage and threw Butch so hard against the wall that he hit his head. It shouldn't come as a huge surprise that Butch began to act out at a very early age. He was a huge bully who wasn't afraid to hurt anyone or anything that stood in the way of him getting what he wanted. And this is from the age of four to five. Don Teresa DeFeo, their first daughter, was born July 29, 1956, and with that, Butch was no longer an only child and the center of attention. Allison Louise DeFeo was born on August 16, 1961, and Mark Gregory DeFeo followed on September 4th of the following year. The stress of going from one child to four, even over the course of 10 years, must have been a lot for them to handle. Big Ronnie's temper grew and his abuse continued. Louise and Little Butch were most often the ones who felt victim to his temper. Eventually, Louise had had enough. She actually left him around the time that Mark was born. The reason why has never been revealed, but I'm sure we can come up with a few. Yeah, exactly. Big Ronnie wasn't exactly husband of the year. His reaction to her leaving was to co-write a song called The Real Thing, and this apparently won her over and the two reconciled. Screw working on myself. I'm gonna write you a song, baby. Man, she must have really loved him for that to work because it fucking wouldn't have worked on me, let me tell you. Yeah, seriously, like, that's such a random thing to do. He was not an apologetic kind of guy at all. He was just like, I'm gonna buy you the nicest thing and write you a song. He clearly doesn't know how to deal with his emotions very well. I mean, just based upon his abusive personality alone, but... Yeah, exactly. <sighs> uh Louise's father owned a car dealership where Big Ronnie found employment. Apparently, he was quite the salesman, and soon enough, money wasn't a concern for the family. They had done very well for themselves and felt that it was a good time for an upgrade. They relocated to Amityville, Long Island, where they purchased 112 Ocean Avenue. An interesting fact, the house had actually seen death once before. In 1939, a man died in the house. It was due to illness, which wasn't exactly the most uncommon thing, but I think it's worth noting. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the house. Oh, man. It was originally built in 1925 in the Dutch colonial style. Five bedrooms, three bathrooms, there's a swimming pool, and the little boathouse is pretty awesome. Oh, the fact that it's, like, right on the ocean is, it. it's a big, beautiful house, I have to say. It's quite unique. 
It is. It's stunning. Like, honestly, I would live there. Like, we've talked about this house a bit on extra credit, and it's just amazing. Um, Speaking of extra credit, can we just take a quick second to, like, plug that real quick? I mean, yeah, this is our show. Like, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> so if you haven't already, you should absolutely check out Extra Credit. I'm very proud of it. I think Dina is, too. Mm-hmm. We release new episodes every second Wednesday. Um, we interview interesting folks or just kind of chat to each other about weird articles from the past and the present. And it's very, like, candid. I honestly, I look forward to it every time we're about to record because we have so much fun. Oh, every time. Always laughs. It's a little more lighthearted. So if you're the kind of person that maybe doesn't like all the doom and gloom and gore and stuff all the time, it's kind of like a nice departure from that for a little while. Yeah, it's it's our casual show where we kind of just do whatever we want. So there's not much rhyme or reason behind it. It's just us hanging out and talking about weird things that other people in our lives would definitely judge us for. (laughs) We have also started ending each episode with a strangest deaths in history segment, which is a lot of fun also. I love it. (laughs) But all right, back to the house. Yes. Okay, so we will post pictures of it on all the socials, but... For you true crime fans out there, I'm sure we all know what it looks like. I am curious, though, are are you guys with us? Like, do you like the house? Would you live there? Like, potential demons aside? They did decorate it with the most expensive furniture that they could get their hands on, along with a beautiful baby grand piano. They spent a lot of money furnishing the house with beautiful paintings and statues, as well as anything else that showed how classy they were. The DeFeo family was immediately disliked in quiet Amityville, especially Big Ronnie. We're not about victim bashing here at all. You guys know that by this point, but I'm not exactly shocked that the residents of Amityville didn't like Big Ronnie. Like, he wasn't exactly a sweetie. Yeah, not at all. On October 24th, 1965, their youngest son, John Matthew DeFeo, was born. On the outside, their lives seemed to be going quite well. But here's some tea. They weren't quite as well off as Big Ronnie made it seem. Louise's father, who had come back into their lives after Butch was born, paid for everything and anything that they needed. This includes a series of life-sized family portraits that Big Ronnie wanted made for the house. If that doesn't sound ridiculous enough, her poor dad paid $50,000 in 1970s money for these paintings. That is almost (laughs) $400,000 in today's money. Just FYI, I am all for supporting your local artists and small businesses, but holy shit, what a commission. (laughs) Seriously, that's a lot of money for some paintings. Especially for... For all intents and purposes, a working class family of the time, these guys are not royalty or anything, you know? Right? But they were living it. They were living that life. Mm -hmm. And despite all of the nice things, Big Ronnie was still absolutely awful towards his family, especially to Butch. And I know it does seem like we're really dwelling on that fact, but it was a huge part of their lives. He would often fly into absolute fits of rage. He was the kind of guy who told his son to stick up to his bullies, but then would turn around and beat the shit out of him for quote unquote, talking back. For a while, Butch couldn't really do anything but take his father's abuse, so he did. 
and before long, Butch had grown up into a large, very angry young man. Their fights became physical, and they often resulted in the two having full-blown boxing matches in their living room. And as time went on, things only got worse and worse. Tension in the family only grew. Big Ronnie and Louise began to notice that Butch was basically turning into a worse version of his father. He was angry, he was hard to control, and worst of all, he seemed to actually lack any empathy. And he was incredibly spoiled. His dad did beat him and treat him terribly, but he also gave him money whenever he wanted. And this says a lot about his character because that didn't stop Butch from stealing from his dad anyway, because he did that pretty often too. By this point, his parents are actually really, really starting to worry about him. They eventually became so concerned that they took him to see a psychiatrist. Nothing came from this at all because Butch just maintained that he was fine and he refused to actually engage in any way. And here's the thing, he's only 14 years old at this point. Like, this isn't some guy in his late teens or, like, early 20s. He's essentially a snooty little rich kid. Speaking of, when they realized that a psychiatrist wasn't going to help, Big Ronnie did the next best thing he could. He definitely put time and effort into raising his son with love and understanding. No, no, no. He bought him a $14,000 speedboat. That's right, friends. A $14,000 speedboat. We had to say that twice so it really clicked for you because that is absolutely ridiculous. On what planet do you give your child, because he is a child, he's 14, a speedboat? Like, right? What is I mean, the scenario I, where that's like, yeah, it's a great idea. By 15, 16 years old, Bush was drinking and engaging in some jazz cabbage. And by 17, he was using LSD and eventually full-blown heroin. All of this uh, self-prescribing really didn't help his personality issues. Yeah, surprise, surprise, the heroin didn't exactly make him a nicer guy. He also began engaging in more and more criminal activities. He was stealing for the fun of it. And by this point, his violent outbursts had spread to those unlucky enough to call themselves his friends. During one camping trip, he picked up a loaded rifle and pointed it right at his friend's face. And this was a really, really good friend of his, too. His friend, who was absolutely terrified, got up and ran away fearing for his life, and rightfully so. Butch eventually lowered the gun and the rest of the group moved on with their night. And when the friend eventually came back, Butch just looked at him and asked him why he had left so abruptly. Like, that reminds me of one of those guys that are just, like, they do stupid shit and they're mean to people. And they're just like, oh, it's just a prank, bro. You have no sense of humor. I can't stand that shit, man. Right. And, like, okay, I will completely say, I, I admit it, we are absolutely bashing this guy. But, like, he's a dickbag who killed his family, so we can do that. I think that's valid and reasonable, honestly. Mm. He ended up landing a job at the dealership, his grandfather's dealership by the time he was 18 where he was essentially paid 500 bucks a week whether or not he bothered to show up on top of that his parents also bought him a car he used the money that he made on alcohol and drugs and with that he's just becoming more and more violent many things set him off but one of them was seeing his father yell at his mother during one particularly bad fight butch got up grabbed his shotgun and pointed it at his father he then yelled 
Leave that woman alone. I'm going to kill you. You fat fuck. This is it. He then pulled the trigger. And if you thought Big Ronnie was about to meet his end, you would be wrong because for some unknown reason, the gun didn't go off. Butch lowered the gun and walked off without saying a word as Big Ronnie stood there, jaw dropped, frozen in place. This to me is proof that he was absolutely ready to kill his dad. Oh, 100%. His dad, if not his entire family, like that's incredibly dangerous fucking behavior. Oh, absolutely. They were constantly getting into physical fights. And I think at this point, it was only a matter of time before one of them had gotten hurt, whether it was on purpose or by accident. But either way, like none of this is a good sign. I honestly think that it was sheer luck that Butch didn't kill Big Ronnie that day. Because to me, in that state, you point a weapon at someone and pull the trigger, you're intending to kill them. And this was like full, like right in front of his face. This He would have died if he had gotten shot that day. At the house, things only got worse and tension between Big Ronnie and Butch was at an all-time high. Butch was known for being obviously a bit of a shady guy at this point, but he finally did something that made his father snap. Like we already said, Butch was making pretty good money at the dealership for doing essentially nothing. It was more of an allowance than a paycheck. But one fateful day, they gave Butch something to do. They sent him out to deposit $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks at a nearby bank. This was when he came up with a plan. Butch and an acquaintance of his came up with a story about them being robbed at gunpoint while waiting at a red light on the way to the bank. They didn't return to the dealership for two hours. When they finally arrived back to the dealership, they told the story to Big Ronnie, who immediately freaked out and started screaming at the person who came up with the idea to send Butch in the first place. That probably really rubbed Butch the wrong way. Like, I mean, he just told his dad that he got robbed, which it's not true, but still. And his dad turns around and basically starts yelling at someone about how stupid they are for sending him to do something so important. Yeah, he's not yelling at him because he sent his son and something dangerous happened. He's yelling because he's like, why would you send this idiot to do that? Not a lot of empathy happening in this family. No. Police were called and when they questioned Butch in an attempt to find the person who stole the money, he acted like a giant brat instead of actually providing a description. Which is pretty bizarre behavior for someone who is supposed to be the victim mm-hmm. in this particular situation. When they started questioning him further about what happened, he got so upset that he started banging on the hood of a car with closed fists. At this point, the police are starting to see some red flags, but nothing enough to arrest him. Instead, they ask him to come by the following Friday to look at some mugshots. Butch agreed. When Friday came around, Butch refused to go in. This caused a screaming match between him and his father at the dealership, and numerous people saw this fight. This one hadn't gotten physical, but before Butch stormed off and drove away, he shouted the following sentence at his dad. You fat prick, I'll kill you. And we really have to point out the fact that he said this before driving off in the car that his father had paid for. Such a rebel. Oh, big rebel. Big Mm -hmm. rebel without a cause. Oh Oh my god. The days leading up to the murder didn't really stand out too much, but it was almost impossible to ignore the tension within the DeFeo home. Things finally came to a horrific conclusion in the early hours of November 14th. 
There's quite a few different versions of this story which we're going to be discussing because Butch DeFeo would tell quite a few different versions himself as the years went on. But for now, we're going to kind of be talking about the main agreed upon version of events. It was around 3 a.m. Everyone was asleep except Butch. He was the only person in the family with their own room, which was good because he definitely needed his privacy. Yeah, something that we haven't mentioned yet was that Butch was also buying and selling guns on the side here and there. He had also amassed a small collection, which he kept in his closet. He was wide awake and alone with just his thoughts and his guns, which is a bad combination. A super bad combination. He's essentially sitting there and stewing to himself. He spent some time thinking about how angry his father had made him and how much he hated him. Butch got up and walked over to his closet. He pulled out a 35 caliber Marlin rifle and quietly made his way to his parents' room. He approached the foot of their bed, pointed the rifle at his father as he slept, and shot him twice. The first shot went through his kidney and made its way up through his body and out of his chest. The second shot tore through his spine and into his neck. And with that, his father was dead. Louise DeFeo, hearing the noise, woke up. And remember, this is happening all very quickly. Butch shot her twice. Somehow, these shots didn't wake any of the other DeFeo children. And here's the thing. At this point, he's killed his parents. That's done. There is no going back. But the kids haven't even woken up yet. He could have just left the house at this point. But no, that was not enough for him. Which tells me that as much as he must have hated his father... He was clearly either incredibly mentally ill, because he even said to himself, it made him the most mad when his dad was yelling at his mom. So why would he kill his family members just because he hated his dad? It doesn't really make sense. But bearing in mind, he's on a lot of drugs at this point as well. And he's one of those people that has no empathy. So to him, it's probably like, oh, well, if I kill them, then they don't have to deal with the grief of losing their dad. I'm sure he completely justified it to himself. Absolutely. He made his way into the room that his younger brothers, 12-year-old Mark and 7-year-old John, shared. He shot each boy once, killing them before they woke up. He then made his way down towards his sister's room. 13-year-old Allison and 18-year-old Don remained. When he walked into their room, Allison groggily looked up at him. He pointed the gun at her face and fired. She died instantly. He killed Don the same way. He did all of this in less than 15 minutes. Neighbors would later report that they heard no gunshots, but that the sound of the DeFeo's dog barking continued throughout the night. Butch cleaned himself up and set upon his genius plan of getting away with murder. He hopped into the shower and then shaved. Apparently, some self-care after brutally annihilating your entire family is something that a person needs. When he was done, he got dressed and he gathered all of his bloodied clothing and the murder weapon. He then drove all the way to Brooklyn where he threw them into a storm drain. At 6 a.m., less than three hours after the murders, he showed up at work ready to start his day. You know what I wondered about this? 
Hmm. I wonder if people were like, why the fuck is he here? He's never on time. Like, he's here? Exactly. I would have immediately been like, what the fuck are you doing here so early, Butch? Like, you barely show up on a good day. Yeah, exactly. And he's clean shaven and he's, like, put together. They're just mm-hmm. like, hmm. Well, we'll get into it a little bit more, but there's, I feel like, several points where the people around him throughout this day should have been like, this is really out of character. Oh, definitely, because he was just, like, trying so hard to be innocent that he was suspicious. 100%. He acted surprised when Big Ronnie didn't show up for work, and he called the house numerous times from the dealership. At around 12 p.m., he left to see a woman that he'd been dating named Sherry Klein. He showed up at around 1.30. When he did, he called the house a few more times, saying that he was worried that he couldn't get a hold of his family. He then took Sherry shopping, and eventually they went over to see his friend, Robert Bobby Kalski. He told Bobby the same story about being worried about his parents and called the house again. He told him that something weird was going on at his house and that the cars were all still there, but that he didn't understand why no one was answering the phone. I don't live with my parents, but if I had been trying all day to get a hold of one of the six family members and couldn't get a hold of a single one of them, also my dad hasn't showed up to the same job where we work together, I would have just gone home. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's already done. It doesn't make any sense. Right? And this is exactly, again, it's one of those moments where he's trying so hard to be innocent that everyone's just like, this is bullshit. Yeah. So... When he met up with Bobby, he asked Bobby if he was going anywhere later, to which Bobby replied that he was probably just going to have a nap instead. I I can relate to Bobby. So can I. Butch told him to come out to Henry's bar for some drinks at around 6 if he changed his mind. He spent the next few hours drinking and doing heroin with his friends. At around 6 p.m., he arrived at Henry's bar with Bobby showing up a few minutes later. Again, he started talking about how the family wasn't answering their phones and how worried he was. He then started talking about how he went to the house already, but he couldn't get in. He then asked Bobby if he would come with him to the house because his plan was to break in. And Bobby was basically like, dude, I'm just here to have a good time. Go off and do whatever it is you need to do. And with that, Butch left on his own. The DeFeo family was only a few minutes away and no one really seemed to be too worried about his absence. He ran back to the bar only a few minutes later, shouting that his mother and father had been shot. To which Bobby replied, Are you sure they're not asleep? Thanks, Bobby. I love that. Dude, are you high? Well, he probably was. but he was. Are you serious? He maintained that he saw their dead bodies, and with that, Butch, along with a few of the patrons of the bar, went to investigate the DeFeo home. Among them was Joey Yeswoit, William Scordamaglia, John Eltieri, and Al Saxton. As they approached the house, one of the men warned Butch that the assailants might still be in the house, to which Butch bravely replied, I don't care. And, well, the dude really wasn't wrong. I mean, one of the assailants was very close indeed, just probably not how he ever would have expected. Oh my god. So together, the men made their way into the house with Bobby at the lead. He had visited the house multiple times and he knew where Big Ronnie and Louise slept. He ran to the door and turned on the light. He saw them dead in their beds. The shock of this actually almost caused Bobby to faint. He was led back downstairs. John Altieri continued to explore the house. 
he made his way towards the boys' room. Upon seeing them, he immediately ran out and the police were called. The DeFeo family had been dead for almost 15 hours. Officer Kenneth Gaguski was the first on the scene. He saw Butch sitting on the front lawn, sobbing. They went into the house. Officer Guguski investigated upstairs while everyone else stayed in the kitchen. He saw the bodies of the parents and the boys and called for backup. He was then made aware that two more children were dead in the house. When they went into the girls' room, they were shocked at the scene. There was so much blood that at first it was impossible to even begin to figure out what had happened. By 7 p.m., a crowd had gathered at the house. Meanwhile, Butch was questioned by Detective Gaspar Randazzo. He asked Butch if he had any idea as to who could have done such a terrible thing. Butch hesitated and then named a well-known mafia hitman named Louis Fellini. He claimed that the man had had it out for his family because he was jealous of their success. A police command center was set up at the neighbor's house where detectives Gerard Gozoloff and Joseph Napolitano joined the investigation. This was when Butch gave his official police statement. And I just need to say this because I'm sure you're all thinking it. These names. Guys, this is Long Island, man. Oh I love, you can tell these guys are all like homegrown Italian-American boys. And I, I love, love it. it. I love the names. Totally. Uh, and I can imagine the way they speak and stuff too. Not to romanticize this at all, but I love that like New York, New Jersey, Long Island accent. I get a kick out of it every time. It's amazing. It is among one of my favorite accents. I love I, it. I totally agree. I totally agree. Anyway, <laughs> back to we Butch's statement. We sound like such Canadians right now. Just Oh, <laughs> we, yeah. I know we have a lot of listeners in the States, so just know if, if you're from the Long Island area, your voice We is appreciate beautiful. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in Butch's statement, he said that he had stayed up watching Castle Keep until about 2 a.m. He woke up again at 4 a.m. and got up to use the washroom, but one of his brothers was in it. That was when he decided to go into work early. He then said he spent the rest of the day with Sherry and Bobby and that he tried to call the house multiple times to reach his family. He broke into the house through the kitchen window and this was when he made the discoveries. Butch was also questioned about the potential involvement of Louis Fellini. When asked why he thought that he would be involved, he said Fellini had lived with the family for a while and that during that time he found out where Big Ronnie kept a stash of gemstones and money. He said that his relationship with the family dissolved after Fellini had criticized Butch at the dealership. The questioning went on until about 3 a.m. Butch had been helpful and he appeared to be absolutely destroyed by the loss of his family. So police had no reason but to believe that he wasn't involved and they let him go. Luckily, he didn't go too far. He fell asleep on a cot at the neighbor's house. Soon after, crucial evidence was discovered in the DeFeo home. Originally, they didn't thoroughly investigate Butch's room. When they gave it another look, they found two cardboard boxes with various guns and descriptive labels. It wasn't all that uncommon for people to have guns, but the box was taken away to be investigated further. The police also questioned Bobby, who had a lot to say about Butch. He told police that Butch loved his guns and that he had set up the robbery. It began to sink in that they had had the killer in front of them all along. 
They went to Butch and shook him awake, and immediately he asked if they had found Fellini. Instead, they began to read him his rights. Butch maintained that he had been nothing but cooperative and even waived his right to have a lawyer present. He maintained that he was absolutely innocent. By now, it was early into the next day. Lieutenant Robert Dunn and Detective Dennis Rafferty joined the investigation. They continued to question Butch about where he was during the time of the murders. Butch stuck to his story, but eventually they were able to confirm that the murders happened sometime between 2 and 4 a.m. The more they questioned Butch, the less confident he became. Eventually, Detective Rafferty decided he was done with all of this and told him, It's almost unbelievable. Butch, we know you have a 35 caliber gun box from your room. Every one of the victims has been shot with a 35 caliber. And you've seen the whole thing. There has to be more to it because it was your gun that was used. This caused Butch to change up his story. He now said that around 3.30 a.m., Fellini and another man woke him up and had a gun to his head. They then led him from room to room and shot each member of his family in front of him. The police continued pushing for details and the story quickly crumbled. Eventually, Butch admitted that the men hadn't been there at all and that he made the whole thing up, saying, It all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. was then arrested for the murders of his six family members. We really want to cover this story in depth, so during part two, we will be covering the trial as well as Butch DeFeo's time in prison up until his death in 2021. The story about the DeFeo family was originally just going to be one part of this multi-part Amityville series, but honestly, this story doesn't end here because the trial is absolutely outrageous, and so are all of his claims and all of his appeals while he was in prison. And there are, as we mentioned at the beginning, some alternate theories that we want to explore. I'm so excited that we're finally covering this. It's a big one. Yeah, I I thought I knew a fair bit about these murders, but I have really enjoyed learning more about them for this episode. That's a terrible sentence, but I stand by it and you, I know you guys get it. We get it. We The yeah. people that listen, they get it. You're, kind, you're um, our kind of people. Totally. Well, you wouldn't be here if you weren't. So welcome and thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, Because this is definitely as far as I'm concerned, one of the most well-known true crime stories. I hope that maybe we were able to teach you something that maybe you didn't already know. We hope you all enjoyed part one of our Amityville series. We had some really wonderful reactions to this when we did our early Patreon reveal, and we really hope everyone is as excited as we are to talk about this absolute roller coaster of a story and speaking of patreon it is that time again of course we want to thank our grim vips and up thank you to kevin mudkip judy hillary brian pink flamingo 20 lisa and bob Seriously, you guys rock so freaking much. It means so much to us that folks support what we do because uh, we like we truly love working on this podcast yeah. and supporting us on Patreon really helps us grow. So does buying our merch, which again, you can do in one of two ways or both if you're feeling wild. You can visit <laughs> our Etsy for stickers, pins, and magnets or check out our Threadless storefront for all sorts of other fun merch. 
Yes, and also just a friendly reminder that a great way to support that costs absolutely nothing is by rating us five stars if you can, wherever you can, wherever you're listening, and to of course like and leave a comment on our YouTube video for this episode. That makes me sound like such a professional YouTuber. Smash that like button, you guys. Hit the bell. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. Also, um, I just want to mention if you guys are into it, Um, I don't know if it's all that useful yet, but it's something that's out there. YouTube now has YouTube podcasts. So all of the episodes that we have up on our YouTube so far are also available on YouTube podcasts. So whichever way you prefer to take in your grim curriculum content is fine by us too. You got options. and Exactly. I know we say that a lot about like the rating us five stars and the liking and commenting and all that stuff, but like it helps other people discover the podcast. So mm-hmm. help us, please. We, we love you for it. Yes, 100%. We also hang out on YouTube every Saturday at 12 p.m. MST to discuss the episode in real time. So come hang out with us. It's super fun. And we have such a good time chatting with everybody. To keep up with all the latest Grim Curriculum news, make sure you follow us on all of the social media platforms. We will, of course, link our personal stuff down below too, because whenever we have like new things on the merch store and things like that, you can always see them up on social media. So you can grab those while you can. Do it. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Charlotte, it's been hot lately, hasn't it? It has indeed. Did you know that when a vulture is hot, they cool off by pooing on their own legs because the poop lowers the vulture's body temperature by protecting its scaled legs from the desert sun? I mean, I can't say I'll be trying that out this summer, but go off, vultures. Go off. Bye. Bye. Bye.